let's cultivate our motivation. Sometimes in our attempt to be happy, we play all sorts of games. Or even we don't mean to play games, we do all sorts of passive-aggressive things. We make all sorts of promises that we don't keep. We somehow think that we're too important to be bothered with other sentient beings or even with our spiritual mentors. So we do all of this in an attempt to be happy, but in fact we're creating a ton of negative karma that we will experience the result of. This doesn't mean that we're bad people. It just means that out of our confusion we do what's counterproductive for ourselves as well as for others. So when we see this kind of behavior in ourselves, it's something to have compassion for, but also to clean up. When we see it in others, of course, we have compassion. But then depending on the situation, we may be able to help them clean it up or we may not. But regardless, when we see ourselves or others overpowered by our own mental afflictions, instead of greeting it with anger or disappointment or whatever, to greet it with compassion and to use that as something that intensifies our wish to become Buddhas for the benefit of sentient beings. Because as a Buddha, we'll have the wisdom, the skillful means, the full compassion to really be able to benefit them most effectively. So let's generate that motivation. Now, what comes in Turkey has been waiting for. <laughs> We're going to talk about brownies. <laughs> We're going to talk about the development of Tantra in Indian Buddhism. <laughs> okay, so. Um, in the late 7th century through the beginning of the 13th century, there was, uh, was a time in many of the you know, areas in, in India of very violent wars. Okay? 
Um, there were many in Tunisian wars, many in foreign invasions. There grew up a culture that uh, really glorified war and, uh, you know, was really wrapped up in it. Okay, the majority of kings were from the lower castes and they, many of them based their claims to power saying that, you know, they were able to ascend the social ladder because their ancestors had made offerings to these siddhas. Okay, siddhas are certain spiritual adepts. They may be Buddhist, they may not. Okay, and these siddhas have been around for many centuries, even back until the third century, you know. Um, so they were saying that they, you know, got their power because their ancestors supported these siddhas. Um, some of the siddhas, like I said, some were Buddhist, some weren't. They were kind of wizards, magicians, um, you know, they did all sorts of dealing with power, a lot of them. Also, in the society at the time, um, traditional ways were very much seen as outmoded, and people came to kind of glorify this rebelliousness uh, and this uh, freedom from structure that was symbolized by the siddhas of the various religions, and also by tribal people who heretofore had been considered as really lower caste. So there was a lot of this kind of defiance of um, social and cultural norms and values going on in the society at the time. So this kind of, this kind of thing going on politically, socially in a society, it influences the religions in those societies, you know, they kind of change and transform to, to deal with the public that, that they have to engage with. At the same time, you know, you had so many Buddhist monasteries all over the place. Um, there was lots of competition for royal patronage, because there were so many monasteries. Okay, um, and there were also monasteries or, you know, gatherings of ascetics of other traditions, you know, because there were the Hindus, the, do I say Savite or Sivite, the followers of Shiva? Shiva, Shiva. She, yeah, but the, to the followers, Shivite. Okay, so it's not Savite, it's Shivite. Okay, so the Shivites and many other um Ascetics and the Shivites actually had a ritual in which the ruler would assume the identity of Shiva and therefore, you know, come to have so much power and w that would give like credibility to all these violent military campaigns that the various rulers would do. Okay. So here the Buddhists were very peaceful. Here the Shivites, like really, you know, uh, going along with this this tendency towards violence. For the kings, who of course want power, have a ritual where the kings identify with the deity and become very powerful. Okay, and um, and so you know, some of the kings are backing backing the Shivites. Some are backing the Buddhists. The, this financial stability, there wasn't any for the monasteries because 
there were so many of them and so many different religions and the society was so uncertain. Okay, so, um, and also the, some of the kings actually withdrew their support of the Buddhist monasteries or even shut them down because they needed the wealth of the monasteries to uh, conduct their military campaigns. So if you even think, I mean, think of the karma you create by shutting down a monastery so you can take the wealth and use it for military campaigns. Yeah, I never create that karma, you know? So this was all going on. The major exceptions were in the northeast part of India. So there was one area in, um, in Bengal and, the, and Bihar, Okay, uh, where the Pala dynasty was in power, and that was like from the 8th to the 11th century. There was another uh, dynasty called the Bhumakara dynasty in uh, dynasty. Dynasty. <laughs> Dinosaury. <laughs> Dysentery dynasty in Orissa. Okay, so both the Pala and the Bhumakara dynasties um, established Buddhist universities, but again their support was a little bit uneven. Um, and so the monasteries had again this you know financial instability uh, because of the royal favoritism and all this other stuff going on. And there was a lot of pressure for them to meet the Shivite challenge, okay? And so Mahayana Buddhism, which really valued compassion, there just, I think, began this mode. I don't think anybody like sit, sat there and consciously thought, all this is going on, how are we going to deal with it as Mahayana Buddhists? I don't think this happens, but more it just kind of happens naturally. That, that you know, in Mahayana, they, they value compassion, but, well, maybe now there's a place for fierce compassion. Yeah, what they call tough love in America. Okay? Um, and so maybe, yeah, maybe in Buddhism there's a rule for this kind of fierce compassion. And so from there, then they went to adopting the sadhana practice that the Shivites and these other siddhas did. And the sadhana practice was basically where you imagine becoming one of these deities and assuming the knowledge and the power of the deities. Okay. Now in the Shivites and the and the other cities, you know, this was mostly done for worldly gain. Yeah. And of course people had to develop some kind of maybe samadhi to do this or different you know, different spiritual abilities. But you know, kind of magical abilities aren't necessarily signs of spiritual progress. But you know, people people love magic. You know, we want to see special powers and something wowy, kazawi, and then we think that people are really highly realized. So I'm sure this was going on in ancient India. It happens here, you know. Yeah, people sometimes ask me, well, you know, if all these lamas or Buddhas, why don't they show their uh, magical powers and, you know, levitate or do something like this. And I say, well, if they did, we would just sit and goggle over them, going, and we would think that gaining those kind of powers was the purpose of the path, and instead we'd forget all about renunciation, bodhicitta, and wisdom. 
Okay. So, I mean, it's very common in spiritual traditions that you can gain samadhi and due to that have different magical powers. These are called the common attainments. It, you know, you have samadhi, it doesn't necessarily mean your mind's virtuous or that you use those things for any good purpose. But people get very excited and enthralled with these things. I remember many years ago when I was living in Hong Kong, I went to speak at, um, at a school and, you know, so I was speaking to a big assembly and, you know, one little kid asked me if, if I ever spoke to God. And, uh, you know, I had to disappoint him and say no. And another little kid say, couldn't you bend spoons? Because this was the days of Uri Geller. Remember? You know, and he could, you know who he was? You know, an Israeli man who could, with some kind of powers, who could sit across the room and bend a spoon. And so, you know, this little girl thought that was, like, fantastic. You know, if I could have bent a spoon, you know, she would have you know, praise me to heaven for the rest of her life, probably. But, you know, I said to her, what good is bending spoons? It would only make other people upset when they wanted to use it. You know? (laughs) So, you know, it's like, what good are these kinds of things? Anyway, people like them. So... Um, so what happened is, uh, you know, the Mahayana Buddhists started adapting this sadhana practice of, you know, assuming the identity of the deity with the deity's powers. And they also, um, you know, adapted their philosophy to correspond with that kind of practice. So now there's like fierce compassionate action and there's, you know, these different, um, you began to see the powers of, of uh, peace increase, peace increase, influence and and ferocity. You know, um, to you know this kind. It became like an adaptation of the philosophy to support doing these these sadhana practices. Okay, now it's hard to know exactly when sadhana practice was was first introduced into Buddhism because everything was done you know, very quietly, very privately. It wasn't advertised. Not like nowadays when you have a tantric initiation and you put flyers all around town and you charge $150 to go. But, you know, in those days it was all very quiet and hush-hush and, you know, these kinds of things. Um, And that that goes, you know, for the, the tantric practitioners of all the different traditions. Because when we say tantra, you know, there's Buddhist Tantra, there's Hindu Tantra, there's Jain Tantra, there's the Shivite Tantra. There's many different kinds of Tantra. Okay, It was a whole movement that affected many, many religions uh, in Buddhism during that time. Okay, so the non-Buddhist siddhas and their sadhana practice went back, here it says, even to the 1st and 2nd century. So quite far back. And, you know, it was easy for the Mahayanas to kind of slide into this because in Mahayana, in the Mahayana scriptures, you know, you have many sutras with Dharanis, which are mantras. You know, you have, um, yeah, I mean, many of them where there's these, this recitation of, of uh, Dharanis. And this, this was in the Mahayana sutras even prior to the 7th century, you know, when Tantra became 
started to become big in the 6th and 7th century. Okay, so the Mahayana had these Dharanis uh, or mantras. They had pure land with all sorts of bodhisattvas in them. Okay, um, so the universe, the Buddhist universe was already changing, you know, because you had a universe with all these holy beings and their pure environment. And even in the Pali tradition, you had these things of, um, I think they call it paritas, these different sutras or verses that you can say for protection. Yeah? So, uh, like the Metta Sutra, the Sutra on Loving Kindness is one that, that you say for protection. There's all sorts of different ones. But the thing was, in the Pali Sutras, when you, when you did one of these chantings for protection, they said what it was that really protected you was your state of mind. Okay, so if you chant the Metta Sutra, it wasn't the chanting of the Sutra that was the protection. It was the reciters developing Metta in their own mind. Okay, so they really emphasize the trans, you know, transformation of the mental state, which is the real protection. And, you know, when you hear the Tibetan lamas speak, that's what they say, too. You know, it's always that you know the effect that it has on your mind. That's that's the real protection. But on the other hand, what you started to have happen, and what you still see now in Tibetan Buddhism, is there's the thing of the ceremony itself has some special power. You know, and even if you don't understand it, I mean, like we. A, you know, you go to most Dharma centers and the puja we just did, you would be doing it in Tibetan. You know, it doesn't matter if you don't understand it. They, you know, you'll hear, oh, well, Tibetan's a blessed language and just hearing it blesses your mind and it doesn't matter if you don't understand. You know, and sometimes you hear this said about initiations. You know, you sit there and, you know, you get a blessing from just being in the room. So there's all this thing about, you know, the power of the holy object. So this gets kind of confusing, yeah, because you start hearing two different things. One is, you know, okay, it's the power of the mental state that happens by doing the recitation. But then there's also the power of the holy object, whether your mind changes or not. Okay? So here you're, you're getting kind of both of these. And... Um, the, the thing about the power of, of the holy object, you know, I mean, this is, this is something that would be quite interesting to talk with, with some of the Theravadas about. I know the Western Theravadas, they just kind of dismiss it. But I wonder what the Asian Theravadas do, because, you know, they could have a, a different mentality about this. And also, what you started to have in the Tantra is... You know, because there's so much symbology and different things are analogous for different things. That there came to be the belief that by working with the analogies, you could affect the actual thing itself. Okay, in other words, by working with... And I think, like in, in, in the non-Buddhist tantras, this would have been viewed as just plain old magic. But what the Buddhists did was... Um, 
you know, they, they brought in the, the beliefs in emptiness. So because these rituals are empty, if you can tap into the emptiness at a deeper level, then you can influence the actual objects that are analogous to the things that you're working with. And so you see this, like, um, you know, uh, the Tibetans have this one thing. You might have seen these things. There's sometimes different people make them. What do they call them? Divine eyes or something. But actually what they are, they're strings. And they're made, um, you know, there's a form of a diamond with many different color strings all around it. Have you ever seen that at all? So the people often wear them for protection or often you'll have a puja. And what happens is you, if somebody's having a spirit offense, they will invoke the spirit, tell the spirit that the person that they're offending is there in where where that the string is. So the spirit will go there and get stuck in the string. Okay, or the Tibetans will do things where they will make effigies of the person. And again, if somebody's having a spirit offense, they'll evoke the spirit and say, here, you know, this is the person. And they'll have this little clay thing or whatever and say, go bother this. And then they'll take that out, you know, and throw it somewhere in the field and, and get rid of the spirit offense. So these are things, you know, that probably came from bone practice, but were given a Buddhist meeting, meaning. But, you know, it's the, whole, the whole philosophy of this started out in Indian Buddhism, where, you know, you know the, the, the string is, is analogous to a net where you're getting trapped, and the effigy is analogous to the person. And so, you know, by... by working with these symbols and thinking of them as empty, then the belief was that somehow you could really influence the, the things in, in the exterior world. Okay? So there is, there is this belief, and, and that sure fit in with Tibetan culture. Yeah, where you had the kind of the shamanism going on with Bon. And so you see that now. And in Tibetan culture, it's so interesting because they don't discriminate. Like, what is Buddhism and what is culture? To them, it's it's all completely Buddhism, you know. And and uh, most of them. Sometimes now you can meet a few people who will have a cultural perspective, but um, they they won't think of these things as as being cultural adaptations at all, either from India or from Tibetan culture. Yeah. So they'll, you know, they'll do malas with dice, they'll do malas with, um, or mows with dice, they'll do mows with malas. There's a way of doing mows even with your shoelaces. There's, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all sorts of different things. And for them it's just all Buddhism because it's all blended together. Okay, but you see this kind of started happening back in India, yeah, and it even happened with the non-Buddhists back in India. And I think this is just a thing, I mean, even in, in Western culture, you had the Catholic Church doing exorcisms, didn't you, with, you know, holding up the cross. And again, the cross, you know, is supposed to be this holy object, and just by the power of the cross, it's supposed to scare off some spirit or something like that, you know? So this is like just all pervasive throughout all different Buddhist, uh, all different cultures. Okay, so you had this kind of 
thing already in Buddhism of doing recitations for protection. You know, you had reciting the Metta Sutra, you had the Dharanis and the Mahayana Sutras. Okay, so, you know, to start doing other things for, for protection by assuming the, the, you know, the identity of the deity and then doing all of these, that just followed, followed suit from what was in the Pali Canon and the Mahayana Canon. Okay. Um, of course, the change here was that you assume the identity of the deity. Now, in non-Buddhist Tantra, yeah, you could see how this would really be a worldly thing. You know, you imagine yourself as a deity. There's no meditation on emptiness. Okay, so you mad you will become an inherently existent deity. You hold the deity's implements. You imagine yourself with the deity's powers. The deities, you know, have all this power to rule over living beings and to make things happen. So you just develop that that feeling that you yourself can do it. Okay. The unique thing, of course, about the Buddhist tantras was you were supposed to meditate on emptiness first before you did this. And you were supposed to meditate on bodhicitta and renunciation first before you did it. So the philosophy behind the Buddhist tantras was definitely different than the non-Buddhist tantras. Okay, Even though some aspects of the ritual may seem the same, assuming the identity of the deity, doing the deeds of the deity, the whole philosophy and the way of doing the practice was entirely different. Because you had to renounce cyclic existence, you know, have renunciation of cyclic existence, and thus of all the power and glitter and glory. You had to be acting out of the uh, compassionate mind of Bodhicitta. You had to understand that you're empty of inherent existence, and so is the deity. So there's no inherently existent deity to be proud that you're becoming. Okay, so that that's why you know it's so much emphasized in Buddhist tantra, or at least it used to be. It's still emphasized in the scriptures. You know, to have this proper foundation, so when you do the practice, it actually becomes a Buddhist practice instead of just to practice to gain some kind of powers, okay? But you could see how there would there could very easily be, very easily be a lot of confusion, you know? If people come along and they want to have powers, and here's a way to have power, and you can be a Buddhist at the same time, well, why not? Yeah? And, uh, and especially, like, even if you look at the sadhanas that we practice now, the, the part where you meditate on emptiness, you know, it says, Aum Sabovashuda Sabadam Sabovashuda Hum, so, you know, I, I am empty and so all phenomena are empty, or all, no, all phenomena are pure and I also am pure. And then right away, it's, you know, Tompa Nidugira, everything is empty. And then Tompa Nale, out of emptiness, appears, blah, 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 blah. And that, that part, that's where you're supposed to really stop and meditate on emptiness. Well, you'll see, even when they're chanting in the monasteries, they zip through it, you know? Like, nobody stops and, and does that, okay? So, um, except us, you know? That's why we were pausing in different places in the Loma Chirpa. We were supposed to meditate on emptiness. Okay, but, um, so you can see how 
there could easily be misunderstanding either on the parts of the practitioners or even if people were practicing purely, the later scholars, especially Western scholars, you know, could look at these things and just say, oh, this is just all corruption. You know, there's no Buddhism in here at all because they would translate some sadhana and it's, you know, I arise and I have, you know, 34 arms and 16 legs and, you know, these many horns and blah, blah. And, and the, you know, the Western scholars say, look, these people are just practicing some kind of pagan something something it has nothing to do with Buddhism so you can see you know how there's the room for a lot of misunderstanding okay and so I think because of that misunderstand both of those kinds of misunderstanding the misunderstanding of non-Buddhist people looking at your practice and the misunderstanding of Buddhist people who don't have the proper prerequisites to do the practice because of the potential for both of those thus the tantric practice um, was said to be kept very private or very hidden so sometimes it's called you know the secret mantra practice you know and there's all this stuff about tantra as secret you know and, and you know because scholars will misinterpret that as meaning that you know the Buddha didn't had a closed fist and didn't give all the teachings for everybody and you know which in the Pali Sutra the, the Buddha said he didn't have you know and I know oh, it's secret and it's a private club and you know as soon as somebody you know how it is if somebody in the room is talking with a normal voice you don't listen but as soon as they start talking like this you start listening you remember that yeah I mean, I always knew when my, my parents whispered I needed to listen. Yeah? So, so it's the same way, you know. People just get, oh, it's a secret practice. Oh, oh, I want to do it. Oh, oh, it must be special. So they get all excited about it. Okay? And so there, therefore so much misinterpretation happens. Okay, so... So it's, it's also unclear whether these sadhana practices in Buddhism were taken from the siddhas directly or through the Shivites. Okay? And it seems like there's evidence that could go both ways. But then also, you know, what the, I'm sure what the Buddhists were doing influenced all these siddhas and, and the Shivites as well. <clears throat> 